Green, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. Where'd you get it? I don't remember, sir. What is that you've got written on your helmet? Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. Whose side are you on, son? Our side, sir. Don't you love your country? Yes, sir. Then how about getting with the program? Why don't you jump on the team and come on in for the big win? Yes, sir. Son, all I've ever asked of my Marines is for them to obey my orders as they would the word of God. We are here to help the Vietnamese because inside every gook, there is an American trying to get out. It's a hardball world, son. We've got to try to keep our heads until this peace craze blows over. Episode 128 of the Cult of Matt Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And make sure to head over to Facebook and like us, uh, or hit our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com, or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to Amazon and pick up my uh, brand spanking new novel, Chronof- Chronophage, under my uh, pen name, uh, M.G. Churchill. Uh, getting some... Uh, I'm getting a few, you know, uh, I guess uh, scores on the board for that novel. So, so how, do, uh, how do you how do you gauge the success of it? What sort of uh, metrics buy do you have? By how many people buy the goddamn thing? Oh, how really how, how quick do you know the sales numbers? Uh, pretty instantaneously. Amazon has that shit down, so they just uh, you know, like almost during the day, you see how many folks are throwing some coin at it. So, oh, that's that's yeah. too bad because I haven't I haven't got around to buying it yet. Yeah, that's all right. Man. <laughs> so yeah. there's no way for me to hide behind. Oh, you got to wait for uh, the numbers to come in at the end of the quarter. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, no, it's an interesting experience, nonetheless. And uh, anybody who does, uh, you know, decide to throw uh, three dineros my way, uh, you please, I beg you to please uh, put a review. And don't put a five-star review. This is the greatest book I've ever read. Just mm-hmm. put whatever you actually think of the novel or the first three paragraphs that you read. I don't care. Uh, just review it. That would be super cool, and it would help me out. So, anyway, that's all I got to say. No, I mean uh, that's a you know it's a good thing. Good thing to ask for. You know, it's a weird about reviews when you go to read reviews on anything. Like first of all, it, let's say it's got four hundred reviews. The first thing you do is you re- read the three bad reviews, right? Yeah. To see what the worst case scenario. And it, it doesn't make any sense because the only time I ever write a review is when I'm pissed at something. Yeah, I know. Me too. And weird? so that means, I mean, <clears throat> that means there's three people that were pissed. And then a hun- another 197 were so happy that they wrote a, v- a review, which I've never actually even done. So, you know, how many above that 197 do you have to have that were happy with the product? You know? Well, it's, it's In weird. In order to like a- those, those sour reviews. I'm a notorious uh, Elizabeth Gilbert hater, uh, the writer of Eat, Pray, Love. And Mm. uh, to pass the time, I read one-star reviews on Eat, Pray, Love just to to hate read that shit. 
I don't know. Am I the only person that does that? But uh, I don't. I don't. I don't do that. I do that sometimes. Uh, where, where, where the hell I have? It seems like I've. Well, sometimes I'll when I'm buying stuff, but it's mostly just for stuff I'm thinking of buying to see if it's you know a piece of shit or not. You know, if you're going to buy like some knockoff product on Amazon for less, you want to see if it's halfway decent. Well, that makes sense. What I'm doing makes no sense. I just, I just, it's sh- pure Schadenfreude. Uh, I just want to hear somebody fucking roast Elizabeth Gilbert over the coals for being a uh, uh, out of touch uh, first world problem fraud. That's a, that's all I want to do. So did, did it comes from a, it comes movie? from a, a vicious, uh, selfish place. That's 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 where my reading comes from when I read the reviews. Did you watch uh, but the it, uh, Julia Roberts adaptation of the book? Because I hate Elizabeth Gilbert so much, I did. I did watch that fucking turd. So and, uh, uh, should we do that some week? Oh uh, no, because well, if you want to, it, it might be a cult hit because so many middle-aged, like the female version of the midlife crisis, mm-hmm. have read that 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 shit pile and uh, decided to book their vacation to Bali with their other girlfriend. You know, to to live out that part of the fantasy. So. Um, and then I guess uh, as part of that fantasy, there's another docu- There's a documentary out there uh, about these like fulfillment boys mm. who h- hang out in Bali. Uh, I think they're native guys. Go on. And and they're like gigolos. Um, but the chicks don't pay them. They just fuck them. Like these old, you know, what like Australian or U.S. or Western European mm-hmm. uh, middle-aged women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they service them. There's like a whole fucking oh God. I gotta find that. that That's the sort of job I need. Uh, are you a 25 year old, uh, well built Indonesian man? No, by chance. Okay, then I don't think it's gonna happen for you. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh damn it! I missed. I missed Sorry. the boat on that one. Sorry, man. I don't know. That's <laughs> uh, the world. So anyway. Uh, yeah, Amazon reviews. If you can, even if it's a shitty one, I don't care. Just mm. just throw something out there and uh, mm. say, yeah. Um, yeah, I was suckered into buying this because I listened to these Joker's podcasts, et cetera, and so on. And then you get some podcast, uh, you know, press. It's, 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 all, it's, all, it's all a big circle with regard to that. Podcast so. press? Yeah, man. They say, like, they. I heard about this novel from the cult of Matt Mark. And then, oh, really? Uh, Somebody's done that? Jaded reviewers would go. No, nobody's done that. But then jaded reviewers would go on to our website and then decide to listen to our podcast. So, you know. Hmm. I think, we call, I think that's what we call ways. synergy. Uh, what? <laughs> that's synergy for you. Oh, uh, it is synergy. Yeah. So show news, Mr. Hudson, show news this week. Mm, uh, Netherlands got third place in the World Cup, not first. Sorry. Uh, was, uh, I was wrong. Oh, um, so whoever put Brazil, money man. down on Netherlands going all the way, uh, I, uh, I apologize. I was at work during the Brazil game, Brazil-Germany game. Oh, and, that was uh, just sad. I clicked, I clicked on the Google banner because they give you the score. You know, and it was like the first 10 minutes and it was zero uh, one Germany. And I was like, oh, well, Brazil's got to, you know, they're going to they got to step it up a little bit. And then I clicked on it, what, 10 minutes later and it was yeah. fucking six zip. And I was like, holy shit, did did the Brazil team just walk off the field? What the fuck happened? Oh, and, they uh, they lost their nerve. I don't know. It was it had to be a coaching here. They just they didn't have any. They they just lost their fundamentals. They they just they just fell to pieces. It was it was it was really sad to see, really. And they were just you know, they were just surgically taken apart by a. I a, think it's a very cogent the, uh, German team. 
I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to say something, stere- I'm going to stereotype the Latin American people and just say they're too passionate and have too much emotion. And uh, when it doesn't go their way, they just fall apart. Mm, so. are, is Argentina considered Latin America? Everything south of our border is Latin America. So there, they, they play a, I mean, I, th- I think there was just some systemic problems with Brazil. I don't think they, they didn't quite have the talent and, uh, you know, they had some injuries and some people out and. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It was just, it was just sad to see. I, I'd never want to see that game again for the rest of my life. It was so sad. Uh, I blame it on their poor economics and hyperinflation issues. Uh, no, I, I don't, I yeah, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> Anyways, so the World right, Cup will end tomorrow, and there'll probably be a pretty good game between Germany and Argentina. I'll enjoy that. I'll watch it. I'll watch it as my wife labors in the spare room trying to pack up uh, all of our shit and sort it out. I'll get yelled at for those three hours or 90 minutes or whatever, <laughs> how long the game goes. You, see, you, you live a magical life, Matthew. I do. It's magical here. All right. Let's get to this movie, God damn it. Uh, our movie this week is the uh, 1988, 87 uh, Stanley Kubrick classic, Full Metal Jacket. Stanley Kubrick's return to filmmaking after a seven-year hiatus. This film crystallizes the experience of the Vietnam War by concentrating on a group of raw uh, Marine Volunteers. Based on Gustav Hasford's novel, The Short Timers, the film's first half details the volunteers' harrowing boot camp training under the profane power saw guidance of drill instructor Sergeant Hartman, played by R. Lee Ermey, a real-life drill instructor whose performance is one of the most terrifyingly realistic on record. Part 2 takes place in Nam, as seen through the eyes of the now thoroughly indoctrinated Marines. Ironically, Full Metal Jacket was filmed almost entirely in England. So that's plot rundown, and uh, what? Where do we well, start? Let's, uh, let's, uh, full metal well, let's start out with Hartman, man. That's a, that's a solid forty-five minutes to start it off. And since I didn't start the podcast with a Hartman uh, audio, here's a little piece for you. Where in hell are you from, anyway, Private? Sir, Texas, sir. Holy dog shit! Texas only steers and queers come from Texas, Private Cowboy. And you don't much look like a steer to me, so that kind of narrows it down. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir! Are you a Peter Pupper? Sir, no, sir! I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give him a reach around. What was it, a Peter Puffer? Yeah, I've never heard that one before. I never heard that one either. But I did enjoy Uh, the steers and queers thing. Is that where that originates? Ah, it's gotta be. I'm sure it's uh, a tried and true classic (laughs) of the drill instructors whenever they come across uh, uh, Texans. But uh, it's weird when I think of Texas. I don't think of the LGBT community. That's one of the last things I think about. I think of, um, what do I think of? I think of like Rick Perry right now as sort of the uh, quintessential uh, dipshit Texan that uh, for whatever reason keeps getting elected in the old Lone Star State. Uh, I guess I should think maybe of more of Austin punk rockers since that's kind of how I want to think about that. How about about, uh, like uh, uh, cowboys all dandied up in their gear? You know what? Cowboy outfits That's pretty gay. are pretty they're pretty fucking gay. For starters, uh the tightest goddamn blue jeans in human existence. Uh poofy cowboy shirts, that uh, kind of like pirate shirts. Uh and high-heeled boots with pointy toes. How how much how gay Oh, can don't you don't get? Forget, don't forget the garishly dyed uh chaps. Fucking the the that cowboy outfit is 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 gay as the day is long. I mean, it's it's. I don't know why nobody can admit that. It's like you know, 
cowboy shit's pretty goddamn gay. Well, maybe I Hartman had, did. Hartman had some truth there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you watch uh, Brokeback Mountain, and it, you know, uh, for me, it, it was like the movie that needed to be made. I was like, oh well, of course, you know, I cowboy shit's pretty goddamn gay. So anyway, but yeah, that line. I guess Stanley Kubrick actually had to. Uh, be educated by uh, Arlie Ermey about the reach around because Kubrick was like, well, what's a reach around? And then Ermey had to um, politely describe the act. To ah. And then Kubrick's like, oh, yeah, that's good. Leave that in. <laughs> so, um, well, the, I think everybody who's watched this movie and who's listening to this podcast knows the star- story of Arlie Ermey. He was uh, brought on set as a consultant for one of the actors to play the Hartman uh, D.I. And Kubrick was like, well, why the fuck don't we just put him in the movie? Because he's obviously better than anybody I could hire. And so uh, he, this, the gunnery sergeant was not an actor. He was an actual drill instructor who had um, trained recruits, fuck, for who knows however long well he I mean he had he had perfected that role that he played as a drill instructor and i mean well, it's just an amazing performance yeah and i guess like all the actors had to do videotapes of themselves even arlie ermy because he did want the role i mean he wasn't just like hey do you want to be in the movie he was you know he's like probably a little bit put out that it's like why the fuck am i training these shitty actors man i could do this as well as any of these turds uh, because I think being a DI is sort of acting to begin with, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a role. And so, anyway, he put together like a 15-minute uh, rant, you know, like one of these things that you see here at the beginning of the movie. And to me, the whole his whole rap, it seemed like he had to have sort of the um, tact of a stand-up comedian. I mean, that guy had fucking... Everything covered. He had every insult imaginable mm-hmm. uh, covered, and he just and he would and he never repeated himself. None of his shit got repeated. I guess in this fifteen minute uh, bit that he did, there wasn't run repetition where he called somebody a you know a slimy pile piece of shit or a, a Peter mm-hmm. Puffer. Like he had that many insults under his belt that he could just fucking <laughs> rattle them off like a maniac. So <laughs> you know that's why it's just brilliant because he's uh, like. You know, watching this objectively, he's sort of a combo of an actor and a fucking stand-up comedian and, like, some just, you know, brilliant fucking uh, mind-melder brainwasher at the same time. It's just, it's amazing. It's pretty impressive. You know, it would have been a neat experience in your, like, being 20-year-old... And going through the boot camp experience. I mean, I was thinking about going into uh, the military after high school. And uh, the idea of going through boot camp just scared the living daylights out of me. So much as I, that's one of the main reasons I didn't go. Well, the thing is, is but if you're like a complete fuck up, like probably about 60% of young men mm-hmm. at age 18, you could really uh, benefit from a 40-year-old fucking tough-as-nails motherfucker yelling at you for eight straight weeks. I think that would do you a ton of good. And any lip you gave him would be paid back, you know, ten times. Uh, That kind of shit's good for young men. 
And, uh, you know, especially if you're lacking discipline, I, I don't have any problem with that with regard to the military. I think that's a good thing. So, uh, anyway, uh, one thing I wanted to point out, I was watching this film and it's a Kubrick movie and it's an odd Kubrick movie because I guess all his movies are very different from each other. So I guess that's not exactly, uh, to say that it's sort of broke the mold of his, of his canon, but one thing I did want to point out was think about A Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket as companion films. And I started watching, you know, it's been a while since I watched Full Metal Jacket. And I watched it and I was thinking, these are sort of companion films. Kubrick has a thing about, uh, I guess, um, social conditioning that I don't know where it comes from or necessarily how much of a hard-on he has for it, but it's seriously the the fulcrum around which Full Metal Jacket and A Clockwork Orange revolve. What do you think about that? Well, I hadn't really thought about the connection between the two because the, sort of it seems like the style of the movie is quite different. Um, but yeah, I think I can see that. It's about how the individual and society interact with one another, especially when they're at odds to a certain degree. Well, it's interesting because like uh, Clockwork Orange, which uh, most of Kubrick's novels come from, or most of Kubrick's films come from novels, but Clockwork Orange is about taking a fucking psychotic, homicidal young man and having society condition him uh, for better or worse, worse, uh, to be a well-behaved, uh, passive, conformal or conformist citizen of uh, of that, you know, setting. Uh, where Full Metal Jacket, you have, uh, I guess, the opposite. You have sort of young men who aren't psychotic or trained to be killers or rapists or you know all that stuff, and then they have society train them to be killers and then they go out and have to complete that role for better or worse. Well, so it's, I a just very, it was it's a very specific type of killer that the Marines make. It's a discipline well, that's killer. True. It's not, it's not a impetuous uh, killer of, that follows his. No, I know. Yeah, no, Alex, little Alex and the Marine Corps are uh, definitely, uh, not the same thing, but, but not that I, I don't think I think Al, the character of Alex could have done rather well in the military because it would give him an outlet, especially if there was an act of war to engage in his psychopathic tendencies uh, under the guise of being a hero and doing good for the world. Well, in Clockwork Orange, I forget the whatever. I don't know the what's it the Ludvico treatment. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the state break him in the treatment. They they make him dysfunctional and incapacitate him. And in the beginning part of Full Metal Jacket, uh, the training or the discipline or the, uh, I guess, the, uh, what do you want to call it? Indoctrination. Indoctrination of Private Pile breaks him. It do, he and, does break, yeah. And I don't so, think I don't think that uh, it's a different type of breakage from what Alex experienced. Alex no, wasn't really yeah, broken no, because he recovered. 
But Paul well, would true. never recover. Right. So since 45 minutes is spent in boot camp and more or less mm-hmm. unrelated to the Vietnam War, because they're really it's really two films in one. This movie. Right. But the the reason that it takes up 45 minutes of the film, uh, you know, Kubrick never does anything uh, willy nilly or without a purpose or just because it looks good or is cool or something like that. So there's definitely a reason, symbolic thematic reason that 50, 45 minutes of, uh, you know, basic training were shown in this film before the Vietnam sequence. So your thoughts. Well, it seems to me, I saw and in between the two halves, there's two characters that are very similar. There's pile and animal mother. I know I they're that, almost I, like I found, they almost look the same. Res- I sound yeah, and I think that has to be purposeful. There's some resonances in it. You know, it's sort of too bad that Pyle broke. It seems like he could have turned to be a really great soldier in the sense that he would be really good at killing people, which is an important aspect of of your skill set as a soldier in a war. And it almost seems like Animal Mother was sort of a I don't know, just a an echo of Pyle, maybe a, a little stronger than Pyle. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned. It's interesting you mentioned Animal Mother because I was watching this again and I was thinking, what's the most important character in the second half, the Vietnam sequence? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I kind of have to say that Animal Mother, you know, he's definitely not the main character. The main character is Matthew Modine mm-hmm. as a private Joker or whatever he turns into. Is he private in that Vietnam sequence? Uh, or specialist in the Vietnam, or I believe he's. Uh, Sergeant, like a sergeant or something, yeah. But I was like, Animal Mother, he is more or less the perfect soldier. At least he is what the Marine Corps uh, ideally, product-wise, wants to put out. For their enlisted men. Yeah, for their enlisted men was Animal Mother. And he is impetuous, and he does break the chain of command, but... You know, and I don't know necessarily how insubordination works at that that level. I don't know if defying cowboy, the squad leader's orders, and going out and doing something is, uh, you know, a court martial or anything. I think that but, um, I think that some of the portrayal of the actual military actions was pretty fanciful in this movie. Well, stylized, right? And so yeah. I think some of that stuff is. There's a lot. I mean, I. Not being in the military and never being in the shit, it's tough in to know. Shit. Um, right. It'd be interesting to ask people to have experience with it, but, you know, just, the, I, I always, I, I mean, my memory of this movie was that it was a gritty, realistic, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vietnam picture filmed in England. At, at, at violence <laughs> and, and war making, and in the fact, it's really sort of a very romanticized sort of Hollywood type portrayal of war i mean not in sort of the old sense of john wayne though he makes his appearance yeah a time right. or two in this vicariously um which I, I don't quite understand um but in a sense it's a little i mean there's lots of uh you know lots of quick clean deaths you know a lot of uh those uh what are those little things where blood comes shooting out of your uh squibs lots of squibs well i mean a lot I, of people okay, just Fire and ammo indiscriminately, like maniacs. Well, that might have happened. But I, I'd say the uh, stylized, romanticized, word S were 
Yeah, they're definitely. Uh, it's too clean. New. Too clean. No, I'm with too you. Too quick. It's. I was really disappointed. I didn't remember that those deficiencies, and you know how I feel about the portrayal of violence in film. And this, right. I think, this made a lot of the cardinal sins that I really dislike about that. And it's too bad. I mean, but. I really enjoy that first 45 minutes, even though I'm not sure what the film's going for in its second half. But I think there definitely is meant to be an echo between Pyle and, and Animal Mother. I mean, uh, animal you know, mother. I'm with you. I, I like, like I said, I just I think that Animal Mother depicts sort of the perfect marine, where all the other marines that are shown, you know, some are just sort of ancillary. Like I think. Comparing him, contrasting him with fucking Rafterman, who is uh, one of the Kool Aid, one of the few Kool Aid drinkers. Yeah, is, he really is, is a powerless Kool Aid drinker, the worst type. Oh, I mean, yeah, I understand the Kool Aid drinkers if it if it embeds there, you know, you know if it if it is part of the the, the societal structure that uh, you know gives certain people benefits over others. I understand you know, drinking the Kool-Aid in that case. But how does he benefit from really think he's doing some good in Vietnam? Well, he's just, he's just, I mean, it's bizarre. Like, uh, um, I always expect at least amongst my colleagues and peers, uh, an appropriate level of cynicism. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I, I expect, uh, when I make a comment, people are on board with it. I don't expect, I guess, fucking party line bullshit. But you get that from time to time. Yeah. And I do get that, and I'll hear somebody say something, uh, and in in my field, there's there's just there's all kinds of contradictions, and uh, I think you know I work with a bunch of people who share my ideology, yet work for uh, an industry that's contrary to that, and I do the same, and so I wrestle with it daily, and. You know, not too often, but you know, whatever. And uh, every now and then, I'll I'll, I'll meet a Kool Aid drinker, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially a corporate Kool Aid drinker <coughs> who thinks that uh, you know these ridiculously Machiavellian mercenary decisions about cost cutting are somehow uh, wrapped up in some sort of talking point that management came up came up, came up with to placate. Uh, you know, the employees. And I'm just like, what? What did you just fucking say? I'm like almost like just taken aback. So it's amazing that Rafterman, he gets, he gets, I guess, some quips directed his way, but he doesn't, he doesn't, it holds out right to the end. You know, yeah, right how he's so point. excited that he killed that, uh, well, he didn't a quite fucking kill. Fucking 14 year old Vietnamese girl, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. And, um, I guess the 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 other soldiers are so. What's the right word? Uh, they don't. There's no correction. They don't correct him. They just kind of like. Well, what, I don't know. Who cares if you correct him or not? I mean, well, people are yeah. dying left and right. What does it matter? If there's people uh, that's that true. that that uh, drink the Kool Aid or not, it doesn't make a shit of difference if he kills that 14 year old sniper or he doesn't. She's a she's a uh, what do you call that? Uh, what did Cheney call him? Um, legitimate combatant. What was that word? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I think we had Dick Cheney there at the uh, the the beginning. Uh, oh, you know, uh, I really section. like that scene. I it only I really, really, really 
came to really enjoy it after uh, watching it later, after I'd watched the film, taking um, little snippets of dialogue. That I really enjoyed that interaction. See, there's a Kool-Aid drinker that he drinks the Kool-Aid because he's part of the... Uh, uh, you know, he's part of the intelligentsia. Obviously, he has that northeastern uh, Harvard square. Right. You know, to go down to yeah. the yard. And, yeah, right, uh, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, it comes, it reminds me of the interesting way that the military is set up, which is really strange. With the officer and the enlisted corps. It's, it's such a strange thing. It's, it's a holdover from aristocracy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that the aristocracy would uh, command the armies and they'd populate the armies with serfdom or, or uh, of sellswords. Well, we, um, yeah, we reviewed Master and Commander, which depicted that, I guess, starkly, where you have 13 year old aristocratic boys commanding like 40 year old salts on the high seas. And these, and these guys were probably sh- hang, I mean, uh, Shanghai. Or what, what did they yeah. call that? Uh, like press gang. Yeah, they were press they gang them. more than likely. Basically, they right. were. But but that's but the thing is, it, it's, it was exactly the same in Vietnam. You got all these officer guys who went to college and, uh, you know, went right into the command structure of the military. And then you have all these these fucking either they were lower class, they didn't have anything else, they didn't have any other prospects. For Impoverished, money, white or they and black or they kids. were or they were actually uh, or they were actually drafted. Right. Yeah, actually, the fallacy is the majority of uh, soldiers in Vietnam were not drafted. I think only 30% or something like that were most of them enlisted. And uh, I think that was more because you had you had a better chance of going to where you wanted to go if you uh, enlisted as opposed to getting drafted. So. Yeah, but they were, they were still were motivated to enlist due to the draft. Yeah. So you and, hardly, uh, hardly consider that a free choice. That's a, they, It was technically the free choice. It was just the best kind of free choice. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, voting Republican or Democrat in our elections. It's, it's like taking a, a plea bargain for a lesser charge when you're innocent of the exactly. original charge. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, I think the uh, what was the enlisted rates were since uh, blacks in, in the U.S. are 8% of the population, but there's 25% of them as enlisted uh, soldiers in Vietnam. So that kind of tells you all you need to know. Yeah, like, it's you know, no great that. mystery. And anybody who doesn't see it obviously never opened their eyes after they got done being born as the much maligned Noam Chomsky would say uh our the u.s army is constituted of the mercenary army of the poor so well know, we look, that the war has always been done that way mm-hmm. yeah more it, or less it hasn't it hasn't changed well it's a little different now i mean not quite but uh i mean it, we don't we don't send out huge swaths of people to die in war like we used to. Just a few thousand here and there, which in a sense doesn't really matter. It's because Twitter, Twitter, uh, Twitter solved all that. Facebook, yeah. Twitter, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, you, you get um, folks that went to college going to the officer corps commanding people who didn't go to college, which is sort of a, a quasi-aristocracy that's in place. Yeah, it's, it that. is a weird structure. I don't know what to say about it, it's just the way it is. It's just part of the stupid way society's organized. But then again, you got to have people go get killed. You probably don't want them thinking too much about it. It's probably best to keep uh, them in the no. dark. Exactly. First to go, last to know, as the uh, sign on the wall said. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so... Uh, I don't know. I, I I didn't mean to beat that one to death, but I just no. We, but we didn't really get to the core of the of of the similarities that 
between Pyle and Animal Mother. It's the look on the face that gets me. It's that Those same look, actors, that, that maniacal look. Who, who are the two actors? Vincent D'Onofrio, who's an amazing actor. He's oh, done yeah, he's very good. Pretty fucking crazy. And a Baldwin, uh, right? Shit. Animal is one of the Baldwins. Is he, is he related to the is other he, Baldwins? Is he a Baldwin? I don't really know for sure. He's uh, Adam Baldwin. Shit. I don't think he, is he can't be fucking related to the Baldwins. <laughs> I have no idea. I was gonna, I, oh, I meant God, to look no it up, way. but I uh, I forgot to. Yeah, you uh, know, I guess I guess we none of us have insight beyond we caught the echo, but maybe we didn't catch the real deeper meaning that was meant there. Well, I'm trying to, you know, I, dudes love war movies. It's the way shit is, you know. Uh, I, I remember I had this on, and Rose was about get ready to get go to bed, and she like looked up movies on for five minutes. She's like, "Oh, this romanticizing war bullshit, fucking it, men bullshit, whatever." And I'm like, "Well, oh, she's wait, right. No, she's yeah, right no. with this movie. This movie does romanticize war a, a bit, not like it used which to, is, but it's still which romanticized." Is, which is fucking odd. I, 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 I was trying to elevate it above. Uh, the red meat, you know, the 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 guy movie red meat level, um, because I think it has a lot to say about certain things. Uh, but yeah, it is under the mantle of dudes movies, well, and dudes do get, love this fucking movie. Let's and get so. to what it's trying to say in the second act. Um, I mean, you know, remember we, we watched Platoon a while ago? Do we? We did Platoon. No, we, we didn't. We didn't. We did Apocalypse Now. Oh, we did Apocalypse Now. I think I also watched Platoon, Platoon as well. Um, and uh, I just remember how stupid Platoon is. Platoon's a terrible it? movie. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's, it's just so dumb. A lot of slow-mo. Go and never leave a man behind. Oh, it's just yeah. just, just horrid, horrid film. And I was like going, uh, and when I saw that, I said, well, you know what's really a good film I remembered that doesn't do all this stylized bullshit? It's Full Metal Jacket. Because I saw it while I was a teenager, but the truth is, it falls into the same pitfalls, unfortunately. Well, yeah, but not not nearly as bad. Well, it's still a Kubrick to, movie, yeah, for but starters. to a so, certain degree. So, but what is? But I think Kubrick had to be aware of that, and he just—I think he had to maybe use some of those tropes in order to get his message across. But the thing well, is, I don't know what his message is. Well, I, I think you know, I, I brought up social conditioning. And I, I think that maybe less of a point was made, although he probably just had a, a very keen interest in social conditioning. Uh, and I, <clears throat> you know, obviously I drew a comparison to Clockwork Orange. And I think that interest him, interested him to a great deal. And whether or not he wanted to make a point of it, he maybe wanted to film it and he wanted to explore it and uh, flesh it out a little bit more. So for that, I can see why this movie attracted him to make. Um, I think all directors want to make a fucking war movie at a certain point. I think it's yeah. more of that because there's lots of really great moments in this movie. It, see, it seems as a whole it doesn't quite work, but there's so many just little special moments that like are one. comments on film. Well, here we go. Let's see if you can answer this joke. Um, how do you shoot women and children? Uh, you don't lead him so much. <laughs> See, that's a fucking great joke, and that's just a little bit. And he he spent and, and Kubrick spends five minutes on the helicopter setting up that joke because he liked it. He liked he liked. I mean, this is 
It's such a fucking dark joke. I well, mean, that's that, why I mean, it's so this, brilliant. But this whole movie is, is full of dark jokes. It's a, it's a big dark joke about war, this whole film. And I think that exemplifies it really well. Just that, the insanity uh, of it. That uh, that fucking gunner scene. I mean, that, obviously that's uh, that that was put in there uh, for a specific anecdotal reason. I mean, mm-hmm. Kubrick wanted you know wanted to depict something like that. Well, maybe they, and, there were these moments in the book. Maybe that's what drew him to the book. And I don't think it was because oh, I really want to show the psychosis of war. I think there was a dark part of Kubrick that said that is the fucking funniest, darkest line I think I could ever muster in a war film. So I'm going to put that son of a bitch in there. Is it, and, is it really uh, that dark? I mean, well, I it's just, I mean, okay, for starters, the dude's just fucking indiscriminately killing civilians. Right. And, and what uh, is unusual about that? Um, it got notoriety in the melee massacre, you know, Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam every once in a while, as, you know, people, but that's pretty standard procedure for war. Well, pretty sure is, all is, those people that get blown up by the drones that are currently buzzing over the various hills in, uh, uh, in the Middle East, aren't uh, making sure they don't kill any women and children, yeah, right. or hey, or just some guy out checking his herd. That's the yeah, best right. part well, about it. On top we, of we all blew, that, yeah, we blew up a wedding party. Well, I tried to steer the missile just to the left so I'd hit the groom and yeah. not save the br- whatever. Anyway, but yeah, uh, you know, um, oh shit, what was I going to say uh, about that scene? Uh, it's a great fun. joke. It's very funny. I laughed. Well, yeah, and and the get some because you don't know what he's doing. I mean, when you first see I think the scene, per- you see you don't know what he's doing. They're flying over rice paddies, and he's shooting. He's shooting that heavy well, caliber after gun. Well, man's like puking a little. Yeah, because he's, he's he's shooting farmers. I know, <laughs> it's like why don't you do a story on me? It's like why would we do a story? It's because I'm so fucking good. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, and get some. I, I th- that that uh, for me, I think was a stalwart uh, line for all my online video game playing with friends. Mm. You know, like, hey, hey, let's go get some, and then we'd go drop into Counter Strike and blow each other away for you know an hour and a half. I mean, another interesting joke is the inside every gook head is an American trying to get out. We heard at the <laughs> intro the f- with a straight face. Yeah, and straight face. straight face, and you know we got to wait till all this peace shit blows over. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. It's terribly <laughs> that's funny. I mean, and there's, there's, then let me play you one clip that also is in the second part, which is, I think just the second part is just a series of scenes to get these, these dark jokes out of the way. Uh, it's something that uh, Joker says. I wanted to see exotic Vietnam, the jewel of Southeast Asia. I, uh, I wanted to meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture and kill them. That's hilarious. I know. Well, and maybe that's the reason that the main character is named Private Joker, right? I, I, yeah, he's, I, he's, he's, he likes to joke around. But, I mean, but that summarizes why a lot of young people go to war. It's in how they sell their armor. Oh, let's, go, let's go out and you see exotic locales. Beautiful exotic locales. Do people really interesting fucking say that shit? Did you never see Navy commercials while you were growing up? Oh, no. And and what you do when you get to these exotic hotels and these interesting people, you blow their their towns up and you kill them. Maybe you rape them while you're at it. (laughs) And it's just just the absolute absurdity of it. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, You know what? I, I always wonder something very stupid. 
about uh, our our shitty foreign wars, which uh, we're racking up quite a few now, is uh, do they actually check soldiers' passports when they go in country? I was wanting to know that. It's like, well, you know, you're in country. You actually have to formally, uh, you know, go through passport control to, oh, to go I ahead. Don't, and, I don't I don't. I don't imagine when you have soldiers, no, I know. soldiers on the ground, just, or the, the, whatever countries who you're invading can go fuck themselves. I mean, sure. like I could just imagine like a C-17 landing at Baghdad and some some mustached uh, uh, puppet uh, Iraqi official going, oh, we got to check all these guys' passports before they can I mean, get on their own I, I wonder <laughs> when you go into the, the U.S. <laughs> air base in Okinawa and you fly in. Do you do you go through Japanese immigration? I bet you don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. See, Maybe you stuff, do if you uh, go out when you go out. off base. You might do it. I don't know. I mean that 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 would. I mean Japan likes to think of itself as a sovereign, so I would imagine that if you're uh, hosting uh, foreign soldiers, that you would uh, uh, need to give them their uh, the the same due diligence that you give any visitor to the country. But I don't know. That's just I, one I of just those I wonder why. <sighs> How, how long are these leases on these bases in Japan? A uh, fuck all. Are know? they formally um, leased or what is the, I wonder what the legal, you know, what is the, how does oh, the legality, how does, how does it, we continue to possess these big bases? In it's probably soil? like a, it's, well, they're probably on leases. They're probably like quid a 200 year quo. lease or something. Yeah, like, hey, what, you know you know what, um, we're going to jack up the interest on uh, those jet fighters we just sold you, uh, unless you let us uh, keep this base at a lease rate that's, uh, you know, uh, affordable. Uh, there's shit like that. I'm sure there's all kinds no, of I think the pretty like standard thing is, in Japan, is like, oh, sure, we'll leave. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I know, I'm sure you'd have no reason to worry about China. <laughs> that's right. Or South Korea. I, they, I'm sure there's no bad blood between your two nations. Yeah, well, I think we got Korea way under our thumb than Japan, but yeah, same shit, you know, the same reason we can uh, fucking barrack uh, foreign, our foreign soldiers in any country we want. There's just little strings you pull, you know, so. Uh, so anyway. there's one other thing about, the, about the, the second half of the movie I want to talk about is that it's that long final sniper scene. Yeah. It's right. painfully Climax. long. Watching that, that girl die. And oh, it seems right. like there's supposed to be some weight there where when Joker finally kills her, but I didn't get it. I didn't feel the weight. Um, what is the, what is the big, what is the big deal? They, wh- why don't they, why did they not just finish her off? I don't understand. What, what is the, they already shot her up. She was shooting them. I mean, is, is it something you really, I mean, let's say you're in a war zone and there's a sniper and it kills a couple of your guys and you go in, you find the sniper. It's a 14 year old girl. What? You don't kill her. Uh, of course you kill her. I just, I don't understand what, why everybody's all torn up inside about it. Uh, uh, am I supposed to be torn up inside? I don't, did you see the focuses on her face? Like there's some deep feelings I should have. And, but I don't, I don't, Either he fucked it up, which I think is what happened, or I'm a heartless bastard. Uh, maybe it may be a little bit of both on that one. Um, you know, watching it, bastard. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying did, did, to. Did it get you? What did you feel during that scene? I just, I just said this is sort of dumb, and then the movie. Well, I think. Way. I mean, you and I are uh, emotionally jaded. Uh, you know, cynical individuals. 
Um, I mean, what is cynical yeah, it may about be a, being in a war zone, having a sniper sh- kill your guys and then killing the sniper? I'd, well, the thing is, is I guess in war, who that person is. Well, for starters, in war, uh, using women as snipers is a tried and true mech- is a tried and true tactic. Um, you know, there were Soviet women in the Eastern Front who racked up more confirmed kills than the greatest Soviet war hero. Uh, yeah, you know, like the. It's a benefit because it's force amplification because normally in those days you didn't – females weren't combatants. So it's a great way to amplify your available forces, right? Well, yeah, and you don't need to rely on sort of the physical prowess necessarily of of, mm-hmm. of the soldier to exploit a tactic. Plus and, you can put him in a suicide situation like this one was in and who cares? Well, you leave, right. you know, you left her behind. She, you know, there's booby traps. I guess that was the thing, right? The NVA pulled out of way, mm-hmm. which is one of the few urban combat scenarios in Vietnam. And uh, they left like that. There's that bunny that was on the ground that that yeah. one guy grabbed. And, you know, so they left booby traps behind. And then they left some suicide squads behind, one of them being, a, a, you know, female snipers. And so, yeah, she was left behind to, um, you know, probably knew she was going to die. I mean, if you're left behind, you have no support and your job is just to pick off, uh, you know, how many soldiers, enemy soldiers you can. It's certainly a suicide situation. Well, yeah. And uh, I think, you know, the problem with Vietnam, like all of our shitty overseas wars, is that we don't understand our enemy at all. And I think Vietnam was just a uh, uh, just, I guess, bizarre experiment in propaganda uh, about how little we actually knew about Vietnam and how little we knew about what people were fighting for. And so that scene for me just maybe brought home that point a little bit more. I didn't get really sentimental and weepy and emotional about it, but... Uh, it was definitely a disconnect that at least America as a whole had about the people of Vietnam and what they were fighting for. Maybe it was supposed to be those characters coming to that realization that they couldn't turn a blind eye to the fact of, sure, it's hilariously terrible and we can make jokes about it and we can joke with this one dead VC that they're having a birthday party with. But when they have to stare in the eyes of, of the 14-year-old female of VC that they're going to kill, maybe it made them take a second and, well, and see I don't it think with, it's, without humor. Well, and I, I think it's, yeah, without humor, even though Rafter Man's like giggling like a, a fucking, you know, idiot. Well, he got her. But, uh, yeah, I guess he did get her. Yeah, yeah she, she, yeah, she yeah. deserved to get got. Got that elk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the, you know, that's, I guess in hindsight, um, you know, you're fighting a 14 year old girl in a war zone that that's your enemy soldier. Mm-hmm. And she took down three of your guys for better or worse. You know, oh, it was say. three. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, that, you know, it's like the old apocalypse now, Colonel Kurtz, uh, monologue about, um, uh, how, we don't have the salt to win this war. Mm-hmm. And uh, no matter how well-trained or how well-indoctrinated or, you know, I mean, thinking of an American expeditionary force, it's amazing we can even go into a fucking country thousands of miles away and fight it all. What an incredible you know? waste of money. 
Well, it's just bizarre psychologically. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the reason that armies exist is to defend the borders. You know, that's been the traditional, mm-hmm. or at least the historic. Yeah, it's more well, economic interest, but I, I see what you mean. All right. Yeah, no, I, we can get into all that. But um, expeditionary armies are, are sort of an interesting uh, idea. Well, they're an and aspect the Ro- of empire. Well, yeah, and the Romans figured it out, and the Romans would use, I guess, methods of conquest. Uh, and they would make the uh, conquering armies more attractive uh, as as sort of a source of power. And plus, they did a lot of real horrible shit that we're not capable of anymore. Like, uh, hey, let's go into this country and kill all the men, rape all the women, and then kill all the babies. And then uh, we've conquered that country. But, this so makes good was, sense. Yeah, and that's that's how it used to get done, you know. But now, you know, we could like the Pax Americana, uh, you know, sort of the equivalent. Uh, I guess we're the the Rome or the dying Rome, if you if you take that political uh, perspective of of our era, um, to get a soldier to train a soldier, ship him out eight thousand miles, and have him fucking fight uh, for what for some ginned up propaganda is still a remarkable feat. And Vietnam was still a remarkable feat that you could do that. And it's a remarkable feat you could do that in Iraq and in Afghanistan, although, you know, we had the whole 9-11 exploitation. But that's some kind of bizarre shit on that level. And so in doing so, uh, you're never going to get a soldier that's going to fight like a 14-year-old Viet Cong. You're just never going to fucking do it. Uh, There's not enough uh, zealotry there to do it. And so... Watching that scene, I just got this, you know, the failure of, I guess, the four, first 45 minutes of the movie. Mm. Um, to yeah, with, No matter how much that uh, the instructor Hartman beat these guys into shape, they'd never be as good as a 14-year-old female VC. Yeah, like, uh, you know, no matter how much God loved the Marines because they packed heaven with fresh souls. I'm pretty sure God had a hard-on for the Marines. (laughs) Had a hard-on for Marines. That uh, they're never going to... um, uh, You can't do it. There's just no engineering, psychological, uh, conditioning-wise, that's going to overcome that, you know, huge chasm of uh yeah or whatever you want to call I, it. I see what you mean i still think it was ham-fisted to a certain extent no i, I you know i'll give you all that I, um the, you know the one thing that's really disappointing though about this is that even with the how poorly our loss in of the vietnam war worked out it still didn't stop america's fascination with its own empire and we're still out there fucking around well you know it's interesting because um the whole um well iraq is is balkanizing like everybody fucking knew it would i i, I don't know why this is a mystery to anybody and like like we I have to do i think the isis stuff is really interesting they're taking two failed states and sort of glomming together a new state out of it it's pretty fascinating stuff uh, i would recommend people to listen to dan carlin's common sense he did a whole thing about isis isis that i think is extremely pragmatic i think i might take a listen to that because it's really fascinating i think i think uh it's going to be a really i think it's going to be an entrenched power there and i don't think the 
the U.S. has the stomach to go back in there and do anything so, about it. Yeah, and I would give, I, I would uh, defer our conversation about that to the Dan Carlin podcast, which is pretty pretty awesome. But fair enough. Um, okay, so yeah, if but, we want to no, move but, on to a new topic. Oh, okay. All right. I was going to say something about the other topic, but anyway, go ahead. Uh, so this is, has to do. With, I think I think we've worked out sort of the generalities of this movie. There's one aspect of it, simply from a filmmaking standpoint, that I, I found really interesting, and I sort of got to the bottom of this week. Um, I got this. I got the DVD in the mail from um, Netflix, and I threw it in into you know, the old computer and launched it up. Fucking the things in four three. It's in one to one point three three ratio. Four fucking three. And I was like going, you. Motherfucker! So I was, broke, I was, I you should have broke that cocksucker. I started, I started bitching, and I was like, "Who, who, who wants a, a, a of of all the I, like? I understand, you know, some people, you know, on their old tube TVs, they want the film to, to take up the whole screen. I get it, and you know, if it's you know, if it's some dip dipshit movie, who cares? But it's it's a fucking it's fucking Kubrick. Kubrick. Yeah. It's like who in their right mind would who's going to go watch a Kubrick film would would want to do that. And yeah. I got I got really pissed. I got so pissed that I I went to the local video store in Everett, which is a horrid store. But I looked <laughs> I on who is that? There's a video store. This in is called Everett? Silver Lake Video. It's like a low rent uh, blockbuster. It's terrible. But I looked on their website and it who, showed who's the, showing up. Who's fucking renting? Okay, I figured true. people who rent there are people who are too stupid to get their movies from Netflix. That's pretty stupid, um, man. Yeah, well, you go there sometime, you'll see. Um, but I, I looked on their website. And I saw they had a DVD copy of um, of uh, of uh, Full Metal Jacket there. So, so I went over there, going, "What's the chances?" I got there, exact same version I had. I had gotten what? the mail from Netflix, and, I, and so I, I got home and I was pissed. I was like, "Oh, you got to be fucking kidding me!" I mean, I was thinking, like, is this some sort of bullshit that 20th Century Fox did to make people buy it on Blu-ray? Which is fine. Look, I understand. Yeah. I mean, I can watch movies on Blu-ray. I like the DVD because it's easy to take. It's easier to take snips from it uh, for the podcast. Um, so after a while, I was like, I just it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. And then i I got into some. I went down a rabbit hole, man, and I didn't. I was amazed where I ended up after looking through a few like movie aficionados blogs and some uh, people arguing on some websites about it. Yeah. This is how it worked. Um, uh, um, <clears throat> oh, sorry. <laughs> after 2001 came out and uh, ended up being uh, converted to the TV, Kubrick saw a version of 2001 be played on the TV and they pan and scanned it. Ooh. And he was pissed. But he didn't have the rights to control that, you know. I mean, yeah. he had money, and the movie studio had the right to sell it. And he was really pissed. And so after 2001, he's like, oh, man, you know, they're, when this goes to home video, which is going to happen, uh, they're going to destroy my film. So what he ended up doing is he shot everything, like most films, are shot on uh, 35 millimeter, which is, in, which is in a 4.3 format. And then you just shoot it to be cropped. To okay. a wider screen format, so basically the top and bottom of the frame gets cut off, and so what he would do is when he he'd format it for your standard sort of widescreen, like a uh, it's like what is it like point eight one to one point eight seven or one to one point six six. It varied a little bit back okay. in the day, and he he composed the film for that, but he'd also compose the rest of the frame too. 
Oh, so he when he'd shoot the film, he'd also shoot a little extra with it. Never you'd never see on the top and the bottom of the frame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the theaters, but when they went to convert it for the for a TV format, because thirty five millimeters is the exact same dimensions as an old TV screen, they would just do the full frame. So you basically oh. instead of cutting the sides off, you're, you're seeing more. They were they were extra on the top and the bottom. And yeah, I went I went and got some clips that had been taken from the Blu-ray online, the Blu-ray version online, yeah. and I compared it to my DVD, and that's what happened. The whole the whole so, widescreen there was there there was just more on the top and bottom. So you're watching like a reversed uh, letterboxed version. Did uh-huh. you watch the end up watching the four three? I ended up watching the four three after the fact, knowing uh, that you're just seeing the whole frame, but more. Yeah, I mean Ebert. It was, I mean not Ebert, but um, it wasn't really how the film was intended. But it was like uh, uh, um, he was so pissed about the pan and scan that he ended up making sure like the whole scene was filled out beyond what you normally see in a theater, so it wouldn't have to be pan and scan for the home release. So he knew that they were going to ruin it, and mm-hmm. so he just did a preemptive strike uh-huh. and and said, "Well, fuck you. I know you're gonna. I know you're gonna do this, but I'm gonna make you do it my way." Uh-huh. And then he just, well, that's you know, that's isn't noble. that fascinating? Yeah, I mean, that's that's that's. I'd say a lot more noble than a lot of act, a lot of directors who would. Um, do some sort of sabotage. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think anybody who's a purist would argue that seeing a movie on old cathode ray tube is a terrible way to watch a film. Uh, but you know, this is before we have, uh, you know, uh, 1080p televisions. And, uh, so, you know, but to, to sort of go, well, give, you know, I'm going to give the masses, uh, you know, I guess I know they're going to watch it on TV, so I'm going to do them a solid and, and give them as much as I can. And there'd be no reason to pan and scan it if it was already cut into 4.3. So yeah. that's interesting. Fascinating. And the extra work that would take every goddamn shot. Not only do they have to make the set for the theatrical frame, but they got to get the whole set above and beyond on top and on bottom has to be all finished out. They called it protecting the full frame is what he called it. Wow. Interesting. That's, I so when he was that. like storyboarding the film, you they had yeah. actually some people were like because some people were no, there's no way that Kubrick actually did that, but they had some storyboards from The Shining where Kubrick was hand drawing the storyboard, and he had here's here's the here's the theatrical frame, and here's the full frame. You know, he's like protect this, protect this, composed for here. Wow, really interesting. That was his he's a. Yeah, he's probably, I think, you know, I think Kubrick, Kubrick, interesting, is American who who did all his filming in England. He's sort of like a Terry Gilliam kind of guy, although he didn't have like sort of the political uptightness that Gilliam does about the U.S. Uh, but he's just, I think he's known for his perfection. That's like why he, uh, I guess, has the fame. And plus his movies are, I don't know, uh they're just so well known and um, uh, distinct, uh, but yeah, he has this perfection quality about him, and so uh, complete control over everything that he does, and so that kind of makes sense. But that's sort of an interesting factoid I didn't know about that. Yeah, I did not know about it either. I was I was so surprised. And it's great after being totally pissed. I found that Kubrick thought about it already. It's pretty amazing. All right, it's getting on the hour. I should probably hit the review. Thank you. 
Ebert reviewed this movie on June 26th of 1987. He gave it a, a, a mild thumbs down at a two and a half stars. And, you know, I, it, even as I've disagreed quite a bit with Ebert lately, I have to say I'm sort of in line with this review. Um, <clears throat> he says uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, movie is more uh, like a book of short stories than a novel. Many of the passages, um, she says, uh, it's a strangely shapeless film uh, from a man whose work uh, usually imposes a, a ferociously consistent vision uh, on his material. Um, <clears throat> he says that um, uh, regarding the uh, shooting of the movie uh, uh, on stages and in sets, outdoor sets in England, it's one of the best-looking war movies uh, ever made on sets and stages, but it's not good enough when compared to the awesome reality of Platoon. Yeah, you wish we just dogged. <laughs> uh, I dogged the movie itself, and maybe not so much the sets. Um, <clears throat> he says the crucial uh, last passages of the film often look and feel like World War Two's World War Two films from the Hollywood era. I'm just not familiar with enough of those films to know if that's the case. Oh, the well, the propagandizing. I mean, that's pretty pretty stock and trade for those films. Well, I think what he's saying is. The film looked like it was shot on sets, like the Hollywood films oh, from yeah. World War II were filmed, you know, in the back lots in California instead of over in Northern Europe. Right. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Um, he says, uh, the opening passages of Full Metal Jacket promise much more than the film is able to deliver. Um, talking about... Um, Arlie uh, Ermes and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's performances. The, these are the two best performances in the movie, which never recovers after they leave it, the scene. So I thought, I thought, I think he has some truth there. Those are two of the, the best characters, and they're gone at 45 minutes. Well, yeah, but there's, I don't know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I, I don't see dilating that whole part into a full movie and abandoning the Vietnam part. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's more saying that <clears throat> the problem is the rest of the characters are sort of weak. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I can see that. I, I don't think it's to the detriment, but uh, um, here, here's an interesting insight that uh, Ebert has that I think maybe let us misled us uh, to make a connection between uh, uh, Pyle and um, Animal Mother. He says that uh, Kubrick indulges in his favorite close-up, a shot of a man glowering up at the camera from beneath lowered brows. Uh, <clears throat> this was a trademark visual in A Clockwork Orange and of Jack Nicholson in The Shining. What does it mean? Um, and then his conclusion is that Kubrick thinks it's an interesting angle from which to shoot the face. And I think there you go. I wonder if that's the case. Sort well, of too sad. So you know, showing a weakness, a chink in the armor. Okay, so really quickly, Kubrick. You know, I, I all of his movies, um, they're not. They don't <laughs> necessarily have like a striking theme to them. Something that that you can sort of give it one word label and put up on the mantle. Um, it's an experience, and like all art. If it's evocative, even at a nonverbal, you can't quite explain exactly why it's evocative, but it is. 
then to me it it stands the test of of decent art. Um, you can go through two thousand one Clockwork Orange, which, which we reviewed. Uh, this film, um, you know, I think maybe Doctor Strangelove maybe a little bit more uh, poignant, but it's not as if there's one thing that you can stamp on. Uh, a Kubrick movie, like a Spielberg movie, like the Holocaust was bad, everybody. And here's a movie to show you. Mm, I don't know if I entirely agree with you there. Well, I I just, and I don't think that's necessarily Kubrick's attraction. So when I watch like all good cult movies, at least under my uh, personal catalog of cult movies is just scenes. I, I, I love particular scenes in this movie. I love all the Gunny Ermy stuff. Uh, you know, I love um, some of Animal Mother's uh, performances. Um, just there's vignettes and scenes, and, and because it doesn't stitch together into a big, cohesive, shiny, uh, monolithic storyline, doesn't bother me a whole, a whole bit. So uh, if... You know, I don't but I think, think that's I, I don't I don't think that's true for other, his other films. His other films certainly can have moments, but there is a more cohesive storyline. Well, in his I other mean, films. you could say two thousand one's a fragmented movie as well. You don't see Dave until halfway through the movie. Yeah, but the know? first part really sets up the second half. Well, this movie doesn't does, necessarily but... set up. We, we we this the first half of this movie is is it's mostly about uh, uh, Ermy and D'Onofrio's characters. And it's really the the lesser characters that we follow in the second half. It's a very strange choice. I don't have a problem with that. Okay, but it's not like his other films. Convention. Um, I I, I guess uh, we we could argue that. I, I think I think it's closer to his other films than than maybe other folks realize. So anyway, but mm, that's me. Um. <clears throat> He says, time and time again, the film uh, has great shots, but no payoff. He says uh, one of his shots is uh, uh, where I think this is, there's, there's a weird sort of disconnected scene where there's a battle that I think maybe is being put on for show uh, for a film crew that's out there. And uh, you see like the film guy and they're, they're going past uh, a bunch of soldiers that are sitting behind a, a barricade and, uh, and some uh, tanks are firing off shots. And he says... Uh, the several during this shot, several soldiers deliver neat one-liners all in a row, all perfectly timed, and the effect is so contrived that the idea of actual battle is lost completely. My take on it was it was supposed to be contrived. There wasn't actually a battle going on at that time. Is that the feeling you had? Well, they were they were doing sort of um, what would you call it? Was it? a photo pressing fire? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't uh, they weren't necessarily. Um, I don't know what you tack. I don't, I don't think they were under fire. Well, the, why no. would if they were under fire? Where would that film crew be out there? I think I think yeah. Ebert misread it. Yeah, I think you're right. It was just a show. It was facade. It was another. Yeah. It was another jab at the modern war making. It was some they, shock and awe going on. Uh, I don't even think there was anybody over there. It was just show for the home crowd. Sure. Um, <clears throat> anywho, um, Kubrick seems to want to tell us a story of individual characters to show how the war affected them. I think that's reasonable. But it has been so long since he allowed spontaneous human nature into his film, he no longer knows how. I think that's why, you know, maybe he's things are seem, seeming a little contrived to Ebert. Um, <clears throat> you see, he says at the, at a, at, at the uh, scene at the end during the, 
the, the death of the sniper, when a Marine feels joy after finally killing someone, the payoff is diminished because we don't really give a damn about that character. He's talking about... Uh, Rafterman. Rafterman. You know, we don't really ever really get to know Rafterman. Other than well, he's we're annoyed with Rafterman, I think. Yeah, but I think he, I think he's getting he's getting down to the game that a lot of those characters we I had no great love for any of the characters in that room. That's true. I mean, you you had certain uh, affection towards a few of them, but you weren't. Uh, you I mean, maybe the cowboy interest. just died, and I mean, Joker. You never really felt warm to Joker. Mm, not really. <clears throat> um, he does mention yeah. that great speech from Ermy about uh, about the the training of um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, that was a rad speech. <laughs> well, uh, it was isn't uh, that awesome? I yeah, love that. Scene, I love that little speech. That, just, that scene uh, that just warms the cockles of my heart. Because I don't know, it's a little bit of a uh, what's the right word? Realism injected into uh i guess mm-hmm. the whole process right well it I reminds mean, you why coups are normally done by the military they got the tools well yeah exactly i mean it's 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 um right they're a factory and their uh whole sole job is to make killers and uh occasionally <laughs> those killers don't come out of the factory with the right QA certification. I don't think. And I don't think that's the point. You don't think it's the the Ermy's there? I think he's making that the 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 Marines makes killers, and who they kill doesn't fucking matter. What matters is that you're a killer, and you're a good one. That you can hit a moving target at 250 feet with an old uh, bolt action Italian rifle and get yeah, a headshot. Right. right. Um. <clears throat> so he sums it up. I think. He sums it up nicely. I have to agree with this final sentence here. Is that Full Metal Jacket is uncertain where to go. And at the movie's climax, which Kubrick obviously intends to be some mighty moral revelation, uh, the movie seems phoned in from earlier war pictures. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I think we talked about this in the last podcast where you have directors who have something that they want to... Uh, work out in later film and you see echoes of it uh, in earlier stuff and I I really enjoy Kubrick's I think it's his 1956 uh, Paths of Glory oh, I've never which seen is, that. is a uh, World War One film starring Kirk Douglas and you know it's it was banned in France um, it's it we take for granted the anti-war film. I, I think that's that's something that uh, in our day and age. Um, I mean, we, not you mean from talking about now or from the eighties? Well, I think just uh, in the eighties, but I, I think you were starting after Vietnam. I think um, anti-war films became because Vietnam was a failure and a and everybody knew it, um, and to make films at least in america that uh, i guess said hey you know all this all this shit that our country's feeding us to get us to go uh, overseas and and fight wars is bullshit and and war is uh poison regardless of the cause and that's that's one thing that uh i think is sort of a uh, what's the right word idea 
that has come slow uh, to the nation state, uh, less, at least ours. You know, my grandfather fought in World War II, the good war, you know, as we all like to say. You mm-hmm. know, the, bred the greatest generation. And it really fucked him up. And when my dad uh, came up for the draft, um, my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, said, do everything in your power to, to get out of it because war is poison uh, regardless of, of what it is, uh, the causes for. It will poison you. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that I think isn't isn't – Obviously, we still fucking get in into <laughs> stupid, shitty wars, and we still buy into the party line. But it poisons human beings, and we're yeah. dealing with it now with with Iraq and Afghanistan. We so, got all these fucked up vets coming home. It's interesting. You go to war, and you you answer that great question: Are you a really good killer, or are you a really poor killer? And the question is: Do we even want do you even want to know the answer to that question? Let's, yeah, just why don't you take a pass? What's on what's it, a good everybody. what's what's the good outcome here? Either I'm bad yeah. at being a soldier or I'm great at killing. Yeah, exactly. And and back in 56, Kubrick made Paths of Glory, which is I think is a great movie. Uh, and uh, here in Full Metal Jacket, you get the scenes, especially in that, that, that cut that you, you put at the beginning, um, of just this, oh, what's the right word, uh, Kool-Aid drinking colonel, you know, who... You even wonder if he believes it, although he's probably said it to himself enough times that he does. Well, it's probably um, an important part of him being part of the American aristocracy. Right. And in um, Paz of Glory, it's French aristocracy that that has this derision towards um, the uh, common soldier. Mm-hmm. And the whole film centers around, uh, I guess, a failed push uh, by the French and uh, the fact that uh, there has to be some kind of uh, punishment, but they do a sort of a decimation type type of thing where they put three, they pick three soldiers at random and put them on trial mm. uh, for the failure. <coughs> anyway, and uh, the Kirk Douglas character, who is, I guess, a captain of that 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 I don't know what do you call them when you're a captain, like a platoon or a squad or a I don't know division, division. or something. Yeah, yeah um, has to Company. defend them. Anyway, but it's interesting because uh, you can definitely see Kubrick's contempt uh, for military hierarchy mm-hmm. in that film. And it gets fleshed out here uh, in certain ways in Full Metal Jacket. So, um, you know, it may have been a, a you see some of these nascent ideas and uh, Full Metal Jacket tries to leverage some of that. So. You know, but that's to me, art is is especially in film doesn't have to be a tidy little product. And a full metal jacket is sort of a laboratory bench of uh, concepts and you know studies and scenes. And I'm fine with all that, and that's why I love Kubrick. And so my my complaint about Full Metal Jacket is in Ebert's, and I know it's more yours than 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 mine. But uh, I just kind of wanted to. I don't know. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to buy Ebert's Kool Aid, so to speak. No, I, I mean I'm glad you took the time to talk about uh, Paths of Glory. I haven't seen it, and I think it's good to you know keep it in mind that maybe if, even if this movie didn't, I'm not saying this movie doesn't have a lot of good stuff in it. Even though I don't think it all really came together really cool. Well, it might not have worked. I, I I get that, but um, no, there's you know, there's I, a ton of great stuff in here. 
and I enjoyed yeah. watching. Though just because I'm saying it, I don't think it all came together to, for a really salient point. I thought that it was a. I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed watching, and and I'd enjoy watching it again because it has so many great moments, especially dealing with the cynicism around war, which really resonated <laughs> with both of us. Well, and some of the dark humor. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because uh, where I work, I'm always um, constantly reminded about uh, what would be the right word, um, protecting proprietary information. And uh, there's there's little, there's little like, it's funny, almost um, wartime posters all around me where I work. <clears throat> and one of them at the door where I go into uh, from time to time. Loose lips I, I, sink encryption? Yeah, it's like that kind of stuff. But it's a picture of uh, Gunny Ermey, and he's uh, <laughs> in his DI outfit. And it's like, seriously, I see him like once a day, this giant poster as I go up to this door. And it says, uh, shut your pie hole. <laughs> Every day, I almost see that guy in poster form. You know, oh, it's funny. Man. Like, shut your pie hole. I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I wish it would say something a little, like a little bit more, uh, uh, you know. Do you have the common courtesy right to give give him a reach yeah. around? Yeah, shut your pie hole. But if you don't, have have the guy that give me call me courtesy to give, give the guy a reach around. God, there's so many just fucking like, like when he goes up to fucking pile. I was like, did your parents have any other children that lived? I mean, it's just, I, I you know, I keep thinking that at night in his little his little di uh, uh, bunk, he's writing material like a fucking comedian. You know, what am I going to say to these worms tomorrow? You know, oh, I got a good one. Because I don't see how you could come up with that shit on the fly. You Maybe he goes in workshops it. at Boy Scout companies. <laughs> That's right. But, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's fucking brilliant insult comedy. I just don't even, ah, you know, I, I, it, it blows my mind that um, that kind of creative talent is used in, in training soldiers to go mm-hmm. fight wars. <laughs> Probably just, pretty cool to like listen in on like uh, some a bunch of the instructors going out to have some brews, talking about some of their stuff. They oh uh, well, I think I mean I think I would fall into the trap that Pyle does. I'd start I just I couldn't get a grin off my face until I you know had to choke myself with his hand. Mm-hmm. But I'd be like, this is the most brilliant comedian I've ever I've ever I've ever had the pleasure of seeing. You know, if he was storming around a barracks, um, you know, just it's like, how tall are you? Five foot nine. I, I, shit, I didn't know they could stack shit that high. <laughs> Holy. I mean, it's probably like an aggregate of, of all the other DIs that he's come in contact with. So it may uh-huh. not be completely original, but fucking A, man. Uh, it's just brilliant shit. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's just a stunning yeah. creativity. Oh, no, yeah. it's, it's, very, it's, a, it's a hell of a performance. All right. So I think we've... Uh, Talked about Full Metal Jacket enough. Um, next week, Mr. Hudson. Uh, next week, we continue starting th- one more round of my short cycle with a great film. And coming in at uh, a brisk 81 minutes, we have... Uh, what, the, what the hell year did that come out? We have This Is 81. Spinal Tap. from It was Fucking at 81. A, and uh, now talk about a nice little nice little film. I, you know, I, was, I was actually uh, I was surprised it was that short. I don't remember it being uh, that short. Yeah. Chalk filled with like cameos from like fucking Billy Crystal playing a mime waiter. I mean, just, just, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Rob again, Reiner's what? film. And, you know, we got that great trio of guests and McKean and uh, Shearer. Which I gets, which gets yeah. repri- I think, do they reprise that trio three times or just twice? There's the whole movie A Mighty Wind where the same three guys play a folk band. Right, they're like a folk trio. <laughs> And um, then and I had I had their second and they like they put out like two or three albums. Oh, they put out their second album was Break Like the Wind. Oh yeah, I had Break Like the Wind. I think there might have been and, a third album in there. And uh, Break Like the Wind, it came in the extra long. Remember when CDs used to come in the long boxes? So it came in an extra them? long. Yeah, it came uh. in an extra long long box. <laughs> and uh, I remember one of the pseudo interviews that they had for. Uh, uh, you know, whatever this break like the wind, they're like, why does your why, why did you put it in the extra long box? You know, because that was when I guess long boxes were getting flack for you know being Wasting wasteful. Paper. Yeah, and then they were like, well, because so so we have so you have more to recycle. Yeah, <laughs> some more to recycle. You know, to benefit the earth. Anyway, uh, the guys are awesome. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, this is Spinal Tap. We probably should have done that one in the first one hundred, but it's it's yeah. we're doing it now. So there's just so many films out there. So uh, until next week. Your days of finger banging, old Mary Jane Rottencrotch through her pretty pink panties are over. <laughs> <laughs>